morning. Great to see you here today. And if you are a guest with us, special welcome to you. We're glad that you've come to worship Christ. And if you're tuning in online for the very first time, we're glad that you're jumping in this series with us, the Gospel of John called Believe and Live. And so we're going to be in John chapter 2. That's in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, New Testament means kind of the second half of your Bible, so you can flip that way. Or if you have your scripture journal, uh, your John scripture journal, you can open that up and make notes this morning so you can dive into it deep this week as you look at it with your small group. And so remember, as we start the Gospel of John, each week we are asking the question, why is this here? What is God wanting us to believe about this passage? And we hit this verse every single week on the screen. It's from the end of John, John chapter 20. The whole purpose of the book of John, why we read it, why every story's in here, why every moment's in here. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it tells us the whole purpose of this book. And it's that we would look at these things that were written and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing we would have life in his name. And so every week we're looking and we're saying, God, what do you desire for me to believe? And how do I find life in this? And I encourage you maybe even to memorize that as we go through the Gospel of John this year in 2022, that you memorize John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And if you're not great at like setting time and and memorizing it and doing that every week, you're going to see it come up on the screen as we start. So at least you're going to read it at least once every week, reminding us to believe and live, to believe and live. So with that in mind, let's look at John chapter 1, or John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who drew it knew where it came from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Copernicum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Pray with me. Lord, as we unfold this passage, And we look at your first miracle today. I ask that you would allow us to to see and to understand it. But far more than that, I ask that you would help us to believe in you today. Father, this passage in verse 11 tells us that this is here that we would see your glory displayed. So help us to see your glory today. Awaken our slothful hearts and our tired minds that we could find life in your name. 
Now let me invite you in this moment of silence to pray that God would help you to believe and live today. Pray and ask him now. And then if you would pray for me that over the few minutes that we have looking at God's word that I would serve you well and point you to the glory of God. Would you pray for me this morning? Lord Jesus, help us to believe and live today. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, several years ago, um, I was at a church and they had this artist come in and he was going to paint this picture. We didn't know what the picture was or what exactly he was going to do, but we knew he was good and he was going to paint a, a picture for us. And as he starts painting this picture, I'm looking at it and I'm trying to figure out what is he painting and I mean, the whole process was just confusing, to be honest. Like, we're looking at it, we're like, he hasn't told us what he's going to paint yet, and what is he going to paint? And so he makes a, a brush here and a mark there, and he's continuing to, to paint and put all these things on there. And even as he's coming to the close and he's finishing the painting, I still have no idea what it is. Like, I'm just more confused. Like, why did he paint it this way? And what is, it like? what is he doing? Like, what's going on here? And then finally, after he's finished his painting, and I still am confused and don't know what's going on, the artist takes and he flips that painting. And when he flips that painting upside down, for the very first time, I see clearly. And I see Christ. It was amazing to watch him start with a lot of confusion. And then at the end, you see and you're like, wait a second, I get it. I understand. I see it now. Now, I mentioned that this morning because this passage, it's a confusing passage. I mean, you, you read this passage and you got to ask the question, why? Like, Jesus, why did you choose to do this act as your first miracle? Of all the things that Jesus could have done, why this one? Like, Jesus, you could have walked on water. Like, why not walk on water as your first miracle to display your glory? Why not do that? Why not raise somebody from the dead because you're going to do that, right? Why not... Help somebody who's sick or feed someone who's hungry. Like, why not any of these other miraculous works? Why this one for your very first miracle? And this is what Jesus used to start his ministry. Why? It seems so simple. Well, I love verse 11 in this passage because verse 11, what it does is it flips this picture upside down for us. Verse 11 helps us to understand why Jesus chose to do this as his first miracle. And it tells us in verse 11 that Jesus did this to manifest his glory so that his disciples believed in him. That's the picture turned upside down. It's not ultimately about the cup or the wine. It's about the glory of God. So I hope what we can do over the, the few minutes that we have as we walk through this passage is that you, as you leave here, could see the, a glimpse of the glory of God. We'll see more as we continue to go through the Gospel of John. But I hope that we see a glimpse of the glory of God. And as we see that glory of God, that we believe in Him. That we believe in Him. So the first thing I want us to grasp and see is that this miracle reveals the power 
This miracle reveals the power of the glory of Jesus. It shows his power. It puts his power on display. Verse 9 tells us that the, the water has now been turned into wine. This is, this is a miracle. And I want you to think about this for a little bit in, in, in a couple of different levels. As we slow down on this passage that may be familiar to many of us, I want us to think about this miracle. Think about the impossibility of this miracle. Jesus does the impossible in this moment. What does it take to make wine? I mean, think about that. You need grapes, and grapes come from a vine, so you need a vine. That vine comes from the soil. That soil has to have a seed in it, and that seed has to be watered with rain, right? You have to have sunlight. You have to have all of these things in order to make a grape that ultimately leads you to where you pluck it and you strain it to where you can make wine. I mean, think about that. Logistically, you need all of those things. Soil and rain and a seed and sunlight. You need all of these things in order to create wine. And Jesus creates wine with none of it. None of it. I mean, that is an impossible act that Jesus is doing in this moment. And not only does he do the impossible with, with not having seed or not having sunlight or soil and all these things, but he also does it with a, with a lack of time. I mean, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but you know how long it would take to do this? To turn even the grape into wine? I mean, I had to research this week, but it takes about three years from a seed to grow into a vine where you could have your first harvest, where you could pull that grape off. Three years to be able to do that, right? And then they say it takes about two years after that for it to ferment to the point where you can actually make wine out of it. So five years before you could make one vat of wine. And Jesus does it in an instant. This is impossible. This is impossible, and this is what Jesus does. And he doesn't just do the impossible. He did it with perfection. He did it with perfection. You see, the power of the glory of Jesus is that he could do this. But he didn't just do it and say, whoa, man, I'm, I barely did that, or I'm glad I accomplished that. He did it with perfection, so much so that this man who's given the title the, the master of the feast, the one who would help plan these, these weddings out, for a living he would, he would drink wine. And he says, this is the best wine that I've ever had in my life. And you know why? It's because Jesus is the one that made it. You see, if you read all the way back at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, and when we sinned, our sin impacted the whole world. Not just us personally, but the ground is literally cursed for our sin. But this, this grape that was turned into wine, it didn't have to go as a seed through the cursed ground to grow up into this vine that would later be strained to turn into maybe something good and palatable. No, it, it surpassed the curse. And the curse of the soil. And what Jesus makes in this moment is perfection. This is a little glimpse of what this would have tasted like in the Garden of Eden. 
And this is a picture of Christ doing a miraculous work, but doing it with perfection. And not only did he do it with perfection, he did it with abundance. Did you see that in here? I mean, don't, don't miss these numbers because they're in there for a purpose. In verse 6, he says how much these stone jars can hold. Each stone jar can hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. 20 to 30 gallons. So when Jesus turns this water to wine, he's not taking one of those little flavored water bottles and like putting a drop in there and like stirring it around. Like, oh, look, it tastes better. Like, no, that's not what Jesus is doing in this moment. What he's doing is he's making an abundance. If you're not great at math, at least, at least 120 gallons of wine in an instant. In a moment. This is what Jesus is doing. He's doing the impossible. He's doing it with perfection. He's doing it with abundance. And this is just a glimpse of what's to come, of the power and the glory of Jesus. Now, I know, I know that right now some of us, as we read this passage and we talk about this passage, you're rooting for me uh, to come along your ethical conviction and, and support it, right? For me to defend whatever your ethical conviction is on this. Some of you are thinking, right now, Ryan, this is your time. Authorize drinking for everybody. You know, right here, Jesus turned water to wine. Like, authorize it. Go ahead and say it all for us. And others of us are sitting here saying right now, like, Ryan, it's time to condemn it. Like, condemn it right now because this didn't have time to ferment. And so this is not fermented wine. And so condemn drinking, right? Some of us are wanting me to fall on one side or the other of that. But let's just rest on what we know from God's word. First of all, what we know is that this is legitimate wine. It is. The master of the feast would have known the difference between kids' grape juice and real wine. He would have. I mean, this was his living. He, he wouldn't have been hoodwinked or confused by this. And he says it's the best. I mean, it's, it's literal wine. And what it's showing us ultimately is that God has the power to make new things old. Jesus in his glorious power has the ability to make new things old. I don't believe when God created everything that he created Adam and Eve as infants. I don't. I believe he created them as mature adults because God can do that, right? God can take something out of nothing and create something. Certainly he can take something that exists that's new and make it old. So don't hold too tightly to say, well, this is clearly not fermented wine. This isn't. Like, don't... Don't hold too closely to that. This passage shows us that this is wine in this moment. But what we also know from God's word is this. God calls us as Christians to be men and women of self-control. Absolutely does. Even in the Bible as it talks about those who lead within the church, pastors and elders and deacons. It says that they're not to be given over to much wine. God calls us to be men and women of self-control. That's clear in God's word. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 even gets real specific. It says, do not get drunk with wine. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Don't get drunk for wine, with wine. Why? For it's debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. So God's word is clear in these areas. But listen to me for a moment. Listen. If your takeaway today is the drink in this passage, then you've missed the purpose. You've missed the purpose. This, this passage that I've read, verse 11, tells us that we should see the glory of God and that we should believe in that glory. It should transform us and change us. So the ultimate picture is not the, is this alcoholic wine or is this not? That is not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is that our God is a glorious God. 
Our God is the one who can transform something that is nothing into something that is great. That's what Jesus does in this passage. And so it shows us his power and his might, but this passage also shows us the glory of his redemptive work. You see the raw power, yes, but see the glory of his redemptive work. Now, where do you see that? Well, in verse 6, this is interesting. Verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. If you want to read and understand this a little bit more, um, you can go to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, there's a whole dialogue about what this means, but let me just give you kind of the short version of this. So the, the Jewish people added another law that wasn't included in God's word to try to make them earn right standing before the Lord. It was a way that you could move up the ladder and be seen as more holy if you kept these religious rites. And what it was was you had to wash your hands in these, these jars, and then you had to wash your plate, wash your utensils, whatever you had, your cup, before you could eat. Because if you ate with unclean hands and unclean plate, then you defiled your heart. Now, I'm all for washing hands and hand sanitizer. Like, oh, that's great, right? Like, we want to do that. But that stuff doesn't make you more righteous before the Lord. And if you eat lunch with dirty hands, that doesn't defile your heart. It might make you, your body sick, right? But it doesn't defile your heart and your soul. But that's what they were saying and preaching at this time. And Jesus, interesting enough, looks and says, I want you to fill these jars with water. Now this is a big deal. Jesus chose this on purpose. Because there was not supposed to be anything else in these jars except for water. And if you chose anything else, then you defiled that jar and you had to go get a different jar. And Jesus chose these six jars in order to say, fill those up with water. Now, if you just could see the setting for a moment. Remember, they're, they're out of wine. There were already jugs there that were, what, empty, right? Because there is no wine. And Jesus comes back there, and it's not an accident. He's not like, mm, any, mini money, but pick those. Do, put the water in those. Like, there were empty jars available for him to turn water into wine. In. And he says, no, I want you to use these purification jars. Jesus is communicating something in this moment. You see, everybody in that time knew what those jars stood for. They knew the washing of our hands would make us right and before the Lord, a right standing. And Jesus is like, I want you to put water in there. And then I'm going to change it. Some people are going to say, well, Jesus defiled it. And he says, no. There's something beautiful that Jesus is putting on display right here. What he's putting on display for us to see is that he is the one that makes us righteous. It's not our works. It's his works that make us righteous. And this is what's happening in this moment. You see, we already looked at it in the last couple of weeks. John the Baptist has been baptizing with water. In John chapter 1, he's like, hey, I'm just telling people they need to repent and kind of have their sins forgiven, like let that wash away. But there is one that is coming that will wash, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit to wash away sins. John's been preaching that. And here comes on the scene this, this picture of water and how you can look at it to wash away your, your unrighteousness and to make you right before the, the Lord. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's not these extra rules. It's not this rites of, of purification that makes you righteous. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we'll unpack this more in just a little bit. So kind of put a bookmark here in your mind. But 
As he turns water into wine, this is a picture of his blood. His blood that would be shed for us, that we could be purified, that we could have right standing before the Lord. It's not because of our works, it's because of his works. And all of this, all of this is putting on display the glorious power of Jesus. The glorious power of Jesus. So the question is, what do we do with that? If Jesus is all-powerful and he is glorious, God, that's who you are. What do you desire for me to do with that truth? Two points of application I would give you that we see in this passage. One, as you see the glorious power of Jesus, bring your needs to him. Bring your needs to him. In verse 3, Mary knows that there's a problem. There's an issue that's going on right now. This wedding feast, man, they're, they're out of wine. And when the wine's gone, the feast is over. And this was supposed to last for weeks. This was supposed to last for a long time, days. And so she comes with this need, no matter how simple, no matter how little it was, she comes to Jesus because she knows he has the power to do something about it. And she says, Jesus, they're, they're, out of, they're out of wine. Would you help in this moment? She's pleading with Jesus for something that seems so, so little, right? So simple. I believe that God is calling us to do the same thing. That we would trust in his power and his might. That we would come to him with the simplest of things. Jesus did this miracle. He didn't have to. He could have been like, that's beneath me. That's too little. I'm all about healing people with leprosy. I'm all about raising people from the dead. Like, I'm about walking on water. Like, that's what I do. But Jesus doesn't do that. And it's because he cares about these people. He cares about the shame that these teenagers probably would have had had this wedding feast ended. He, he cared about them. He loved them enough to do something about it. Now Jesus has the power to do something incredibly small to relieve the shame of two teenage people. But he has vast power to do even the things that we think are impossible. God, can you transform this area of my life Can you fix my broken heart? Can you redeem what's happened in my life? Yes, Jesus can do all those things. Jesus, could you even forgive me of my sin and my shame? You wiped away their shame from having a wedding feast issue. Could you wipe away my shame from my sin? Could you do that? And the answer is yes. This is the glorious power of Jesus. So would we bring our needs before him, our need to be forgiven of our sin, our need to have things that we need for our everyday life provided for us? Jesus, would you do that? And let me just challenge you, would you be so bold to come before him with your daily needs and ask him to provide? But at the same time, as you bring your needs before him, as you pray to him, you have to realize as you look at the glorious power of God that he is not a genie in a bottle that you rub and you're like, give me my three wishes and do whatever I tell you to do. That's not who our God is. Look at the glorious power of who our God is. He can do the impossible and do it with perfection and do it in abundance. This is who our God is. So don't come to him flippantly. Come to him with an obedient heart. And that's what we see in this passage. You see the obedience of of the servants. You see the faithful obedience of of Mary to know, I'm going to come to Jesus and ask him. I'm going to just ask him, would he do something? You see the faithful obedience to of these servants to to do whatever Jesus says. 
And, and verse 5 in this passage, maybe that's one that you need to think about this week because if you just do that, if you, if you don't get anything else out of the sermon today, if you can just get this, it'll change your life. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. If you just look to Jesus and be like, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Whatever it is, like that's what I'll do in this moment. But that's what the servants did. And put yourself in the shoes of these servants for a minute. They don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. It's not like, oh yeah, you remember Jesus, how he did all these 15 miracles? Like, yeah, we'll trust him and we'll do this. They didn't know who Jesus was in this time. His fame hadn't spread to all these different areas. And yet, they go to this this person they don't know, and they're like, yes, we'll do it. We'll fill up these water jars, this simple task we'll do. And then Jesus tells them, yeah, I want you to take a, a cup and bring it to the master of the feast. He hasn't told them what they're doing yet. I mean, put yourself in their shoes again. Think about this. Wait, you're wanting us to take dirty dishwater that people have, like, washed their hands in, and these pots are pretty nasty, and you want me to bring a cup of that and, like, give it to this guy who it's his job to determine how great wine is to try this water? Like, no way, I'm not doing that. Like, that's embarrassment. That's shame that could have come on these servants. But they're faithful. They're faithful to do the simple things that Jesus asked. And I just truly believe that God desires to to work miracles through us and in our lives through simple obedience. If we would just simply obey, listen to what Jesus says, and just like, I'm going to be faithful to obey these little things. I believe that God wants to work miracles in our lives. But too often we hear what Jesus has to say, and we're like, nope, I don't want to do that. And we turn and miss out on some of the greatest moments of seeing the, the glimpses of the glory of God. So would you be faithful to just obey what God is calling you to do? Would you be faithful to, to bring your daily needs and even your large needs that you think are impossible to Jesus because he loves you. He desires to put his glory on display in your life as you look to him. And so this miracle, this shows us his present power of glory. But it also, this passage also calls us to anticipate his future glory. We see it in the moment, but then it's also a call for us to, to look and anticipate his future glory. Now, you might be thinking, where is that in this passage? Like, where did you find that, Ryan? Like, I'm not, I'm not seeing that in there. Well, zone in at verse 4 with me for a little bit. And I need you to concentrate because he says three things. This request has been made. Will you do something about the fact that there is no wine at this party? And Jesus says three statements, and I want us to walk through these statements because these statements are extremely important to this story. Jesus says to her, and this is verse 4, woman, it's the first thing he says, what does this have to do with me? Second, and finally, my hour has not yet come. So first, the statement of woman. This is odd, you remember who asked this question to Jesus? Mary. Why did Jesus not respond to her with mom? Mother. Like, why in this moment does he respond and say, woman? Like, maybe even as I read it this morning, some of you are like, oh, dude, I don't like that at all. Like, that really rubs me the wrong way. Like, Jesus just called her woman. Like, what in the world? Well, in this moment, this is not Jesus being disrespectful. 
The best way to describe this term for woman that, that he's using there for us in the South is like saying ma'am. Ma'am. So it's not disrespectful, it's not affectionate at the same time though. It's kind of a neutral term, which is still odd. Like your, your mom has asked you to do this and you respond with ma'am? Like what's going on in this moment? Well, Jesus will use this time and time and time again in the Gospel of John. He'll look at the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he'll look at her and call her woman as well. The woman who's caught in sin in John chapter 8, he'll call her woman. Mary, his mom, again in John 19, he'll call her woman. Mary Magdalene in John 20, he looks at her and calls her woman. But it's not a sign of disrespect. It's not affectionate, like I said, but it's not a disrespectful thing either. Jesus is using a neutral term. But I have to say this, in our culture today, this is disrespectful. And so don't leave here and talk to your mom or your wife this way and say, woman, give me some lunch today. Because you will get far more than lunch by making that statement, I promise you, okay? So, so don't say that. It wasn't disrespectful at this time, at Jesus' time, but it is today. So don't say it, all right? But he starts and he makes the statement, woman. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is extremely important to understanding the kind of future glory that's being displayed in this passage. Because Jesus is like, what does it have to do with me? What, what is Jesus thinking about when he makes that statement? We don't know for sure, but I believe, and I'll, I'll argue my, my case, I believe that what Jesus is thinking about in this moment is what every single person thinks about when they go to a wedding. Every single person goes to a wedding, and what do they think about? Hopefully their wedding one day, right? You're going there, and you're kind of analyzing it, and you're like, man, where will my wedding be? Who will it be with? What is it going to look like? And you start to analyze and be like, I like that, or I don't like her dress, and I don't like how the pastor did this. I don't like, like we analyze and we think about our wedding if we're single. Now remember, Jesus is a 30-year-old single man in this moment. And there he is at this wedding, and he's looking at this wedding and this celebration, and she's like, hey, hey, these people are without wine. And he's like, this isn't my wedding. Like, what does this have to do with me? This isn't about my wedding. That's these people's problem, right? I think that Jesus in this moment is thinking about his wedding. But what's amazing about this is Jesus isn't asking the question, am I going to get married? Or how is this going to happen? Or when is it going to be? None of that is a fearful thing to Jesus because he already knows all that. He already knows all that. You see, we'll get to this in a, in a few weeks, but in John chapter 3, John the Baptist shows up on the scene again and, and people come up to John the Baptist and they're like, hey, John, you're losing all your followers. All these people are leaving you and they're following Jesus instead. And in John chapter 3, he says, yeah, the bride goes after the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the groom. That's all I am. They're not here for me. They're here for the groom. It's not about me. It's about him. See, he's using this language. And John's even highlighting it here that we'll see in other passages of Scripture that the bride in which Jesus is marrying is the church. It's the church. That's what's happening in this moment. Jesus knows that my wedding day is coming. And it is to the church. 
And what I love is that God's word talks about what this wedding day is gonna look like, what this wedding feast is gonna look like. That's why Jesus isn't confused. That's why Jesus doesn't have to wonder when it's gonna be or what it's gonna look like. Multiple passages in the Bible tell us about this day, Old Testament and New Testament. One of my favorites is in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, this is what it says. Speaking of this day, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, for everyone, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, an aged wine well refined. And this is what that day is going to look like. He will swallow up on that mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of the people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Jesus knows what the day is going to look like. He's looking at this moment. He's like, there's a day coming where I'm going to wipe every tear from eyes. There's going to be rich, well-made wine for us to be there. That's what Isaiah is telling us in this moment. And so when they're asking for wine, Jesus is like, what does this have to do with me? I'm going to provide wine one day, but it's at my wedding feast, right? And I love what we see in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. And this book is written by the same author that gave us the gospel of John. And in there, he describes what this wedding day is going to look like. Chapter 19, verses 7 and 9 says, Let us rejoice and exult in him. The glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is very likely what Jesus is thinking about when he makes this statement right here. What does this have to do with me? Because he knows his wedding day is coming. And those that are going to be a part of it are those that have seen his glory and believed in his glory. But we also can see from this passage that Jesus wasn't just thinking about his wedding day, but what it was going to cost for that wedding feast to happen. We see this in the third statement he makes in verse 4. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now what is he talking about in that? My hour has not yet come. Because Jesus did the miracle. I mean, it's not that Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come for me to teach. Because he was already teaching when he was 12 years old, the Bible tells us. It's not, my hour has not yet come for my ministry to start because he did it and he started his ministry, right? So what are you talking about, Jesus, that your hour has not yet come and yet you did the miracle? Well, once again, when you read the Gospel of John, page after page, you see the statement where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And every time he makes that statement, it points to the fact that he was going to lay down his life and die for us. Over and over again, he says that my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 12, John chapter 13. So something in this moment is triggered in Jesus' mind where he looks and he's sitting there and he's like, man, my hour has not yet come. Because he knows that what, what the cost is for this wedding feast would be his life. That's what it would cost him in order for us to be able to feast with him. 
That's what it would cost him in order for us to be invited to this wedding feast, like the book of Revelation said. You see, we know that this this picture of wine in this moment is a picture of the blood of Christ because of what we see surrounding this passage, but also what we see Jesus talk about later in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels. You see, Jesus would equate wine with his blood when him and his disciples had the Passover meal or the Last Supper. And what's interesting there is they gather this meal and they get together and they're supposed to have this feast and, and drink this wine and to take this piece of bread and remember how God gave his body for us and drank the cup. At least that's what Jesus tells us. But at this time, when Jesus has the Lord's Supper with them, what he was supposed to do is give some kind of rabbinical teaching that would tell them about the Passover in the book of Exodus, where God would literally pass over the houses and rescue and save those that they wouldn't have to die. And so he was supposed to tell them about Moses as they took this meal. He was supposed to tell them about Pharaoh. He was supposed to tell them about let my people go. But that's not what Jesus did in this moment with this feast. What Jesus does is he stops and he makes it personal. And he tells them, this is a, a picture of my body that's given for you. This is a picture of this, this wine. This is a cup of my blood that would be shed for you. And the disciples at that time would have been scratching their heads saying, what are you talking about? But the next day when they saw Jesus on the cross, then they would have understood. You see, we get the, the benefit of hindsight of 2,000 years to understand what's going on in this moment. But the disciples didn't. But when Jesus hung on the cross and he died and his blood was literally shed in their place, they're like, I get it now. I get it. So for us to be invited to this wedding feast with God that Revelation 19 talks talks about, Jesus knows that his hour would have to come and his blood would have to be shed. But this is the encouraging thing about this. This is the amazing news. Is that because of what Jesus did, we are all invited to the wedding feast. Every single one of us. On behalf of Jesus Christ, if you can hear my voice, you are invited to the wedding feast. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are now. You are invited to the wedding feast because of the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He has made a way. Every one of us get to be a part of this wedding feast the same way. We walk down that red carpet to the party, that red carpet that has been stained by the blood of Jesus Christ in our place to forgive us of our sins. This is what Jesus does. And so, yes, we see the future glory of God in this moment. We see him giving us hints of that there's something ahead. There's something ahead. There's a glory where Jesus would lay down his life and not just lay it down, but take it up again. There's a glory that he's going to come again. And when he comes again one day, there's going to be a feast of celebration and of joy where he will wipe every tear from every eye. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what verse 11 is telling us to look at and manifest and see the glory of God and to believe in it. To believe in it. Will we do that today? Will we look at the glory of Jesus and believe in him? Now, there's two ways practically I want us to do that as we kind of close today. Two ways. One is where they're both going to come through the Lord's Supper. 
where we remember what Jesus has done. And as we take this, this small little cup with this tiny piece of bread, what we're doing is we're looking and we're remembering the glory of God. God's word is very specific that this is for believers. And if you haven't looked at the glory of God, if you've never taken that step to believe in him and to trust in him, then God's word says don't take this. There's no, there's no judgment coming from us. The Bible actually says if you take this, you take judgment on yourself. So if you don't take this because you're not a believer, that's all right. There's no judgment coming from us. But we would plead and invite you to believe in Jesus today so that you could take this with joy. And Jesus already made the way. He's already invited you to the wedding feast. So take this and remember and have joy. Now God's word is going to tell all of us as we look to this moment and we see the glory of God that we should repent of our sin. So if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then use this moment of silence I'm going to give you to pray. And just pray, God, would you forgive me of my sins? And I'm going to give you a couple things to think about as we pray, as we think about our sin. But you can repent of those things and turn and see the glory of Jesus. But also, if you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the body that he gave for you, then God's word actually tells you to still look at your life, search out sin and repent of that and to turn from that. Don't continue to, to live for these things, but allow God to transform and change your heart and your life. Look at this as an assurance of pardon that he has forgiven you of your sins. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take just a few moments right now in silence and I'm gonna pray for us to, to start us and give us several things to think through that we would repent of these things that we looked at the glorious Jesus and find our forgiveness. And then I'm going to give you some time just to pray to the Lord. Lift up your, your heart, your anxieties, whatever sins that you see. Cleanse your heart and look to Him. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Bow your heads with me. Our gracious Savior, thank you for your sacrifice that is sufficient to cover all our sins. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation that you've given us to the wedding feast. So Lord, as we take this time, we want to remember who you are, that you're the all-loving, gracious, glorious God that came down to sacrifice and to give your life to save us. At the same time, we want to remember who we are. We're rebels. I have run from you, that have not done what you have called us to do. God, we've lingered where we haven't, or don't need to linger. So Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of our complaining mouths. God, would you forgive us when we've used our mouths to slander others who are made in your image. Father, would you forgive us of our envy when we envy those who have more than us or have the job that we desire or the relationship that we so deeply desire, God, forgive us of our envy. Lord, forgive us of our wrongly placed obsessions where we're constantly pursuing comfort and pleasure in this world and we're showing a lack of desire to store up treasures in heaven. God, forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, would you wash us from our apathy 
attitude to your word. Cleanse us from where we have disobeyed your law. Lord, would you hear us? And may we know that we are forgiven in you. Hear our prayers now as we confess them to you. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that while we were your enemies, you chose to die for us. You drank the cup of wrath and suffering so that we could drink the cup of joy. And we thank you for that. Amen. If you have professed Christ as your Savior, then take the the bread now and remember his body that was given wasn't taken from him he gave it he gave it for us take it and remember and then take this this cup and remember his blood that was shed for us to wash us white as snow take and remember his great glorious Let's stand and let's sing to the Father who loves us so much. Sing now.